Let's turn today in our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We can turn to chapter 1. We will begin uh, today going through this letter of Paul, this book of the Bible. And so today we're going to be doing it a little bit differently, not uh, exegeting a specific passage, but we're going to do an overview of the whole book and kind of get an idea of what the book is about and the background behind this letter. And so to read a part of the scripture, I'm going to read the greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then go down to verse 12, and we'll finish at chapter 2, verse 4. That might give us some idea of what's going on in this letter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 1. God's word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Down in verse 12, chapter 1, Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again for God's help. Our God, we thank you for your word, that your word is truth. We ask you that you would sanctify us through your truth, through this word. As we listen, as we study today, God, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to make us more holy, make us more like Christ, to make us less like the world, and instead to think your thoughts, to have the perspective that you have given here to Paul in this letter to to the Corinthians. And so, God, we pray that you would be among us, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, many of you know J.I. Packer, a well-known theologian, died a few years ago. Um, may have heard of a little book that he wrote, not one of his most famous books. It's a little book entitled, Weakness is the Way. And really, most of that book is about 2 Corinthians. But I, I love that title, and I love that phrase, Weakness is the Way. If you want to have a life motto, this would be a good motto for your life. Weakness is the way. And if we were to summarize the book of 2 Corinthians and give it a title, we could give it that title. Weakness is the way. That's the point that Paul is trying to make when he writes this letter. Everything he says is going to fall under that summary, that theme. Weakness is the way. J.I. Packer himself experienced weakness And when he was just a seven-year-old boy, he was in a serious accident. He was hit by a milk truck, and he was in the hospital for weeks. It fractured his skull. It seems that he almost died. He had rehab for many months after that. And he writes about how that impacted his whole outlook on life, even though he, he wasn't a Christian at that time. But later on in life, he, he, he's a genius. He published many books, had degrees from Oxford. He had everything, humanly speaking. He had a very prestigious career and resume. And yet he re- remembered that time when he was seven years old and how it impacted him. It taught him the lesson of his own weakness. It kept him from pride even as he was getting doctorates in Oxford. He learned the lesson that weakness is the way. And this is the same lesson that God wants to teach you and me as we go through this letter. We don't face a lot of outright persecution right now in America. We pray on Wednesday nights for these people who are severely persecuted. Their lives are on the line. And we're not facing that. So how does God teach us about our weakness and our need to depend upon him? How do we learn these lessons that we are jars of clay? Our sufficiency is from God, not from us. How does God teach us that it's when we are weak that then we are strong? Well, we go through times that, like what Paul experiences in this letter, he writes about it, the thorn in the flesh, where God sends trials our way. Those can be different kinds of trials. It could be wrestling with our own sin. You're wrestling with your sin and you find it so hard to overcome your sin. Why does God let you do that? Why does he let these things happen to you? It's to show you your weakness. Maybe you guys know the hymn by John Newton. I hope that at some point as we go through this letter, we'll be able to sing this hymn together. Where he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. And that might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Okay, so he's asking the Lord, Lord, I want to grow. And then he says, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for faith and grace. It's by letting hell assault you, by letting you see the evils of your own heart, God answers your prayers for more grace. Because it shows you your weakness. Well, that's one way, but we also face tragedies in life. We face loss and suffering and death of those we love. We face accidents, sicknesses, we get cancer, we face relational troubles with other people who might reject us or they might hurt us. You face disappointments in your life. You have dreams and hopes and expectations and God doesn't give you those things. God gives you, as the Puritan said, a crook in the lot, an unexpected turn in your life. Why? 
Because all of these things are designed by God to prepare for you an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. To humble you like Paul is with the thorn in the flesh so that you can then hear God say to you, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. You have to be weak if you want his power to be made perfect in you. It's to bring you to the point of what Paul says here in this letter. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Weakness is the way, but it's not the natural way for us. It's not the way that we like. We like power. We like strength. We like success. We like prosperity. I think we're all Americans in this room. America is all about you being strong enough to do anything that you want to do. That is ingrained into the psyche of Americans, especially. You can be whoever you want to be. This is America. This is the land of opportunity. Now, there are some good things about that, but it does not teach you weakness. This stuff that's going on with the transgender craze. It's a very Western problem. I can be whoever I want to be. Who are you to tell me what gender I am? I decide I want to be a different identity, and I have the power, I have the money, and I have the technology to try to be the person that I decide I want to be. There aren't people in the bush of Africa thinking like that. People are trying to survive and get buckets of water for the day and make enough money to live. It's such a Western idea, expressive individualism. I want to be who I want to be. We live in a nation and a world, and we have a devil who wants us to think that strength is the way. Weakness is not a good way. And that's why we need 2 Corinthians. We need this reminder. 2 Corinthians, I think, is Paul's version of living out and writing about what Jesus taught. And Jesus said, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of all, what you've got to do is be the servant of all. It's completely opposite of what the world says. As Jesus says in John 12, if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and remains alone, nothing. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. So if you want to bear fruit, you must die. Weakness is strength. Paul's living that out, and he's writing it to the Corinthians. So weakness is the way is going to be the main theme of 2 Corinthians. It's what we're going to focus on today. We'll focus on it for, Lord willing, the months to come. What we're going to do uh, now this afternoon is do an overview of the letter. And so first I'm going to go through the background, the kind of story or timeline of what's happening, why Paul is writing this letter, what, what it's about. Then we're going to go do a flyover over the whole letter. Uh, we'll go pretty quickly. But we're going to just look at the structure of it and how every part, every chapter is fitting into this theme. And then we'll end with more applications about how weakness is the way for us. So you have some notes there in your bulletin, a timeline of events. Uh, you can grab a bulletin if you would like to. But uh, I'm going to tell the story of what's happening in Corinth and generally just go through this timeline, but because it's the afternoon, I'm going to try to keep you awake a little bit. Uh, I, I don't have questions, sorry, but I'm going to try to tell it as a story. The commentaries, you know, you can just read endless pages of commentaries of all these little intricate details of what happened or didn't happen, and, and it can just uh, make you go crazy. I'm just trying to tell, tell it as a story. So here's the background of 2 Corinthians. 
First of all, I wonder if you've uh, ever been in a relationship that got a little messy. You ever been in a complicated relationship? That happens in relationships, right? Sin infects relationships. And so a person will sin against another person. And then there can be misunderstandings after that. Uh, Somebody was not trying to offend you, but they offended you. And then uh, you're not sorry, but then later you are. But when you're sorry, they're not sorry. And you just go back and forth with this complex mess of a relationship. Sometimes relationships get so complex and messy that people just decide to break off the relationship. Friendships end. Sadly, Jesus says, because of the hardness of heart, sometimes marriages end. And sometimes in churches. People leave churches because of relationship conflicts. But not all the time. Sometimes marriages struggle, but they can be repaired. They are restored. Friendships can be restored. And brothers and sisters in the church can learn to forgive one another and bear with one another and be restored in their relationships. And so 2 Corinthians, in the background of it, is a story of a pretty messy relationship with Paul and the Corinthian church. It's complicated because it involves people and it involves sin. And so let's think about what's going on here. First, there's the Apostle Paul. And he travels to Corinth and he meets these people where he preaches the gospel to them. So here he is, it's 50 or 51 AD. He's planting a church, he's preaching the gospel. The Corinthians love him. Oh, they're they're his father in the faith. They are saved through him. He has such a huge impact on their life. They come to know Christ, they're growing in their faith. Oh, the Corinthians are so thankful that they have the privilege of having Paul in their church and in their life. So that's how the story starts. Paul plants the church in Corinth. But the Corinthians were influenced by the upbringing that they had. They were growing up in a pretty wealthy place, full of material things. The society in the city was all about materialism, accumulating more and more stuff, achieving honor and status by how much wealth and how much stuff you had. Corinth was influenced by athletics, holding this huge athletic contest every few years called the Isthmian Games. And people would travel from all over Europe and Asia to come and watch these games. And so that would be another way that Corinth became wealthy because of the tourism industry through sports. They are also wealthy because if you look on the map there, that is kindly printed in your bulletin, it is between two seas, S-E-A-C. It is between the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea. And so it was a port for both sides. So you'd have all these people bringing their goods from Asia, and you have all these people bringing their goods from Europe, from Italy, and they could meet there. And you would have wealth from this side and wealth from this side. And it's all centered there in Corinth. So Corinth is a wealthy place. People in Corinth also have uh, a best friend named Sophia. Sophia stands for wisdom. Sophia thought Paul was foolish. So many of the Corinthians think that Paul is foolish. And the things that he talks about, the way that he talks... He's foolish because he talks about a man dying on a cross to forgive sinners. Sophia, or sorry, Corinth, uh, loved wisdom, loved philosophy. That's who Sophia represents. And so philosophy would tell you that what Paul's message was, was foolish. And so even though at the beginning many Corinthians loved Paul, they're still got this upbringing Saying, well, maybe Paul's not so great. So there's all this sin, there's all this pressure. And then Paul had to leave Corinth. Uh, After he leaves Corinth, the rest of the story pretty much takes place through writing letters and maybe some short visits. 
So he plants the church, but then he has to leave. And when he leaves, the Corinthians start to lapse into some old ways of sin. Uh, you can read in 1 Corinthians 5 about how the church was tolerating a man who, had his father's, who was living with his father's wife. So they're tolerating this sin, and um, Paul has to write another letter. Now, Paul wrote, it seems, four letters to the Corinthians, so that's why it gets complicated. I'm going to call this letter A. So it's not 1 Corinthians. It's confusing, okay? It's not, it's called, we call it 1 Corinthians, but it's actually the second letter to the Corinthians. So I'm going to call this letter A. Paul wrote letter A to the Corinthians. And he mentions that letter in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's writing to them, don't associate with immoral people. But the Corinthians took his words literally. They stopped associating with unbelievers completely. And so Paul had to write another letter. Letter B. It's called 1 Corinthians. So that's letter B. He writes this other letter and he says, What I meant was, don't associate with someone who calls himself a brother and is living in immorality in the church and won't repent of his sin. So Corinthians, you can, you can know and be friends with immoral people, but if someone needs to be removed from the church, you need to do that if they're living in unrepentant sin and immorality. So that was 1 Corinthians. He also told them at the end of the letter, he says, I'm going to visit again on my way from Macedonia, and I want to go to Jerusalem. And I have a, a fund that I want to collect for to help the people in Jerusalem who are in a famine. So I'm coming. I'm going to visit you. And that's how he ends the letter. Letter B, or also known as 1 Corinthians. Well, Timothy is the mailman here. Timothy delivers the letter of Paul called 1 Corinthians. And when the Corinthians hear the letter, they are not happy. They get mad. Who is Paul to call out their sin? Does Paul think he's so perfect? <laughs> so they're mad. And Paul hears about it from Timothy. Timothy comes back and visits Paul and reports, Hey, hey your letter didn't go over so well. And Paul's heart's broken. He's brokenhearted that the Corinthians are now mad at him. Here's where the relationship gets really messy and complicated. He's brokenhearted, and so he rushes over to make an emergency visit. He calls it the painful visit, and he references that in chapter 2, verse 1, that we read. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Earlier, he had made a visit, and it was painful. He made an emergency visit so that he could talk through the conflict, and he wanted to work things out and try to help. But the problem is, when he got there, things got a lot worse. That's why he calls it painful. Not only did it not help resolve the conflict, but more bad stuff happened. More misunderstanding and sin happened when, they got, when he got there in person. There was a small group in the church, and they publicly slandered and bad-mouthed Paul in front of the church. And what really hurt Paul the most was that nobody stood up for him. Nobody defended him. The small group tried to get the whole church against Paul and nobody did anything about it. So Paul calls that a painful visit. He has to leave again. And then... A few months later, we get Titus, another colleague of Paul's. As these guys are all traveling around, right, getting reports from churches. And so Titus sees Paul. He says, Paul, things aren't good. They're, the relationship between you and the Corinthians is very broken, very messy. And so Paul decides he's going to write another letter. He is burdened over their relationship. He wants to fix things. And so he writes with much anguish of heart, with many tears. And he sends off another letter, letter C. So this is the third letter 
what he calls the letter of tears. He, he references that in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He writes this letter because he wants to reconcile. It seems like in this letter, this tearful letter, he was begging Corinthians to repent of their sin, to reaffirm their love for him, because again, if nobody defended him, he feels like they don't like him anymore. So he says, I want you to reaffirm your love for me. And he sends that letter off with Titus. So Titus goes, he delivers the letter. That's letter C, remember, the third one. The Corinthians get the letter, and it seems on one hand they appreciate the fact that Paul is writing and he expresses his care for them, his affection for the church, but sin comes in again. Misunderstandings happen again. The Corinthians are frustrated. Because at the end of 1 Corinthians, letter B, Paul said he was going to visit when he came through Macedonia, and he didn't visit. Instead, here, here, here's Titus showing up with a letter. Uh, I thought Paul was coming. Are you sending Titus here? We don't want Titus. We want the Apostle Paul. And so, one hand, they appreciate the letter. Thank you, Paul, that you say you care for us. But are you lying to us? Are you wishy-washy? Are you vacillating, as it says in the ESV there in, in verse 17? Paul says, was I vacillating when I told you that I was going to come on my way to Macedonia? Because that's what they're accusing him of, being wishy-washy. What we're going to read later in this letter, it wasn't because Paul was vacillating or because he was wishy-washy or dishonest. It's because plans changed and so, uh, the situ- uh, sorry, the situation changed and so his, his plans had to change. He thought that it would have been better for him not to visit in person. Because last time he visited in person, it was all about him. And he thought, well, if, if I show up again, then there's going to be a big fight in the church and it's all going to be about me. I don't want it to make, make it about me, so I'll just write this letter. And I'll just tell them that I love them and that I want this relationship reconciled. So you see, Paul's intentions were good, but they took it the wrong way. So the relationship gets complicated. Well, then there's one more problem that came up. There were these other people. These other people started coming into Corinth that Paul calls pseudo-apostles. People who are calling themselves apostles, I like to call them the super-apostles. That's what some people call them. Super-apostles because they seem to be bragging about themselves. And so the the super-apostles came into Corinth and they started to drag the hearts of the people away from Paul towards themselves. Super-apostles looked so put together, so successful. They would brag about themselves. They, They were professional speakers, and so they would charge people to come listen to them speak. And so they would brag to this Corinthian church, look, look how many tickets we sell. Look how much we earn through our speaking. Look how successful we are. And then they would put down Paul. Look at Paul. He's an amateur. He's not a real trained speaker. Paul's a tent maker. He he makes tents. He works with his hands. He's a blue-collar worker. Now remember, Corinth is a place of status and, and wealth. And so it's a scandal to them that a blue-collar tent maker would be the highest leader. No, the highest leader should be a guy with great skills and great education and great wealth. Corinthians, you really want to be seen as the scum of this town? You have Paul. Paul is weak. Paul looks weak. Look at the scars on his back. His content is weak. He keeps talking about a Savior crucified in weakness. Who would want to follow a leader like that? And by the way, they would say, 
Remember? Paul said he would visit. And he didn't show up. He doesn't love you as much as he says he does. And so you see how the Corinthians are starting to get drawn to these guys away from Paul. Paul says in, in this letter, I'm feeling a divine jealousy over you. He's jealous that their hearts are going towards them. So that brings us to this letter. Letter D, fourth letter that we call 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes this letter with all that backstory in mind because he needs to defend himself. He's going to say, the reason I didn't visit you is not because I vacillated or I'm wishy-washy. It was for your good to spare you for more pain. And he wrote to defend himself and his weakness. I'm not ashamed of my weakness, he's going to say. Actually, I'm going to be glad. I'm going to boast in my weakness. Because Paul is going to say, I'm a minister of the new covenants. And the new covenant is all about human weakness and how human weakness can show the power of God. And then at the end of his letter, after he defends himself, he goes after the super apostles in chapters 10 and 12, 10 to 12. Paul is on fire in those chapters. His tone is different. He changes. He is going after them. He tells them, just like the serpent deceived Eve, they are deceiving you. The super apostles are bragging and commending commending themselves, bragging about themselves, but he says all that we need to care about is the commendation of the Lord. So he writes writes this letter, he sends it off, and all of it was for the Corinthians' good to be reconciled to them, to help them see the truth, and to let them know he is coming to visit in person. Well, the story ends uh, after this letter is written, so we don't have the evidence of that here, but the story does end with Paul back in Corinth. And so it seems like, from what we can tell, that the letter actually accomplished its purpose. Paul stays there for several months. And so we would assume that if things were really bad, he wouldn't have stayed there in in peace. Um, He doesn't criticize or castigate them anymore after this. So it seems they did reconcile. And they hosted him as he stayed there for a few months. And then from there, he writes the letter to the Romans while he's staying in Corinth. So that's the story. That's how the letter, uh, that's how the story ends But you get some idea now of the purpose of why he wrote this book of the Bible. Well, let's go to the next part then, Uh, the structure of the letter. How does all this fit together to make his main point? So again, the purpose is for Paul to defend his ministry. Every part of the letter is trying to make that point. So you have an outline there in the bulletin. We'll generally go through that. The letter starts with a typical greeting, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Then he moves into a blessing in verses 3 to 11. In most letters, he usually thanks God for a church. He says that he's praying for certain things about them. But that's not what he says here. Now maybe it's because... There's strife, and he doesn't have a lot to thank God for uh, in, in, their, in their case. Uh, we don't really know. But instead, he blesses God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He praises God as the God who helps through suffering. So that's a theme of the letter. Okay, so that's the introduction. Now, We have a big part of the letter, part two, which is Paul defending his ministry uh, and defending his integrity, that he's a legitimate apostle. And so you break this up into three parts uh, where he's defending himself. Part one or part A, uh, Paul explains why he didn't visit Corinth. So he starts that in verse 12 of chapter one and goes all the way to chapter two, verse 13. So why didn't he visit Corinth? 
Well, because he decided not to make another painful visit. He didn't want to cause them grief. So he's defending himself not as someone who's not a liar, who's not vacillating, but who desires reconciliation. So he defends that part of his ministry. Then at the end of chapter 2, he starts to defend his ministry as an authentic apostle, a real apostle. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2 that he is a man of sincerity. He's commissioned by God. So that's the whole point of this part of the letter. He's a true apostle. How do we know? Well, chapter 3, because he's a minister of the new covenant. And the new covenant is dependent upon the spirit. The spirit does the work to draw people to God and to Christ. Spirit does the work of the new covenant. And in chapter 4, he keeps going with this. He is a, a jar of clay. The jar of clay is a container to contain something that is very valuable. And so he says in this case that the, the purpose of the jar of clay is not to draw attention to the jar, but to what's inside. And so he's a real apostle because he's not a drawing attention to himself but to the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, he keeps going with this, talking about his uh, bodily dwelling as a, as a tent that is temporary and how he is suffering. So that's continuing the jar of clay. He talks about how he has been an, become an ambassador for Christ and he's called to reconcile us to God. And then in chapter 6, he gives his resume. In chapter 6, starting in verse 4, he talks about his resume as afflictions and beatings and imprisonments. That's his validation for being a real apostle. And then in chapter 7, we get to the third part, part C, of him defending his ministry, where he talks about how Titus has come to him and uh, Titus has given a good report that they want reconciliation. So there's this is defense in that part of his ministry. Now in chapters 8 and 9, we have another main section of the letter where he is talking about giving. He's asking them to give to his mission, to give to the fund for Jerusalem. So how does this fit with defending himself? Well, what he's doing is he's asking them to show that they want to restore the relationship. And the way that they're going to do that is by giving to the mission that he's asking them to give to. You all know that uh, there are many people you can listen to on TV or on the Internet. Uh, you can go on something like Sermon Audio and you can just listen to a bunch of sermons. But there might be one or two, I don't know, that you might feel like you want to support financially because you really appreciate their ministry and you find them very valuable. So, you know, people like Ligonier, they, they make requests that, that you contribute so that people can listen to R.C. Sproul's teaching. Well, if you're to give to Ligonier, it's a way of you showing that you support the ministry. That's why Paul's asking them to give. If they are truly going to be reconciled, he wants them to put skin in the game by giving to the collection for his mission. And he also mentions in this part that he's sending Titus to say that he wants the relationship to be restored and Titus is going to carry this letter to them, to tell them that he wants restoration. Okay, well, then we get to the last part of the letter, chapters 10 to 13, where, as I said, he's defending himself against the super apostles. Paul has been personally attacked, and so he's going to personally defend himself. Nobody else in the church stood up for him. He's going to stand up for himself. But what he stands up for is not how great he is. He boasts in his weakness. And I think the high point of the letter 
is in chapter 12, where he has that thorn in the flesh that he, he writes about. And he says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. That's his main defense of why he's a real apostle and those other guys are fake. That's why the Corinthians need to love him and not those other people. Because Paul is weak in himself. So he ends the letter then with pleas again for reconciliation. So there you go. Uh, maybe that helps getting an idea of what the letter's about. How does this apply to you and me? Let's think about that for a few minutes. I think of this application as like these Russian nesting dolls you've probably seen, where you have these wooden dolls and you open it up, and there's another doll. It looks exactly the same, but it's smaller. And you open it up, and there's another one. You open it up, there's another one, and on and on it goes. So that's how I think of these applications uh, of this letter. This letter is about a minister of Christ, a minister of the new covenant. And so you might think, what does that have to do with me? Well, here's how I, how I think about it. If Paul is defending his ministry as a weak ministry, you open that up and then you realize, well, if we want a minister like Paul, we need to be a church like Paul says we should be. So if Paul is a weak minister, we need to be a weak church. Okay, well, let's think about that more. Well, if we're going to be a weak church, let's open that up. What is a weak church made out of? It's made out of Christians. So we need to be weak Christians. But then you can open that up even more. Well, uh, what, what are weak Christians about? We have a weak Christ. Weak in the sense that we're going to talk about crucified in weakness. And so the question is then, do you follow a Christ crucified in weakness? So let's think about those things quickly. What kind of ministry or minister do you seek? If we apply this letter and Paul boasts about his weaknesses as a minister, what kind of ministry do you seek? Would a search committee have hired Paul? Tent maker with no formal education, not very eloquent, former vigilante, doesn't have a wife, so who's going to play the piano? Uh, he's not very eloquent. He says he's not eloquent. And he says that he only preaches one thing over and over again, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What kind of resume is that? Would a modern church want a minister like that? I think many modern churches would not want the Apostle Paul in their church. They want a charismatic figure who can draw crowds. But for Paul, the medium was part of the message. The message of the gospel should not be hindered or covered up by a minister, a messenger who would draw attention to himself. John Flavel says, A crucified style best suits the preachers of a crucified Christ. So, what kind of minister do you seek? Do you seek a minister with a crucified style? A minister who is weak in himself, a jar of clay so that the power of the gospel can be at work through him. Second then, what kind of church do you want to be? Are you going to be a weak church? Boasting in weakness? I would love it someday if I saw a church sign that says, Join us. We are weak. Churches ought to boast in their weakness. You don't literally have to do that. Don't worry. But, but wouldn't it be interesting? And what does it look like to be a weak church? Well, I think we express our weakness mostly through prayer. Prayer is saying, I can't do it. God, I need you to do this. Think about what churches do. They do things. They see a problem. Oh, we're not reaching young people. Let's do something. We're not evangelizing. We're not seeing sinners saved. We don't see baptism. 
We need to go do something. We need to go share the gospel. We need to go knock on doors, whatever. Now, there can be times where you need to go do something. But see, most churches, the first thing that they don't stop and think is, oh, maybe what we need to do is do nothing, but instead pray and ask God to do something. What would happen? If churches just started praying and praying fervently for sinners to be saved because they haven't seen sinners saved in a while. If they they don't see young people coming to their church instead of saying, we need to change the music or we need to start doing Awanas or doing this program. What if they just said, why don't we stop and just pray fervently for a few months that young people would specifically come to this church? And then you would see. What if that happened? You would see God did this. It wasn't our program that did this. So I think prayer is how we express our weakness. And so I ask you, do you pray? I love our prayer meeting. But I don't know what's in your heart during our prayer meeting. I don't know what you're thinking or doing. Are you praying fervently? Or are you checking things off a list of things that you're just asking? Do you express your weakness through prayer? Well, then the next question is, what kind of Christian do you want to be? If we want to be a weak church, we need to be weak Christians. A strong Christian in this sense is a Christian who is depending upon himself. A weak Christian is dependent upon God. And Paul calls us in this letter to be weak. We hate to be weak. We don't want to be like Paul, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. But Paul says, all of that is so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Paul says in this letter, if you want the resurrection power of Christ in your life, you must have a crucified death first. If you want the eternal weight of glory, you must have light and momentary affliction first. And so when God brings trials into our lives, we say, as the song does, whatever my God ordains is right. God has sent this into my life to teach me. His power at work in me to prepare for me that eternal weight of glory. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Do you boast in your weakness? Because it drives you to your knees to show you the power of God. And then lastly, who is the Christ that you follow? Are you a true Christian? Do you like to follow Christ because you want glory from it? Do you follow Christ who is crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God? Do you follow a Christ that you know will bring shame in the world's eyes? Because he came to earth to to bear our shame. These things that we hear about with our sin, these things are not popular. Are you going to follow a Christ who shows you the reality of your sin and who shows you that he took on that sin and it is so shameful that he, the Son of God in the flesh, had to die so that you could be made right with God? Are you part of the new covenant? See, the new covenant is about what you cannot do to save yourself. You need the Holy Spirit to save you. You cannot earn it. You cannot work hard enough. So are you thinking that to be a Christian just means that in some way you just need to try a little harder, do a little more, and then God will accept you? No, the new covenant is all about how you cannot do it. The Spirit must do this in your life. Have you asked God to save you, to give you His Spirit, 
to open your eyes, to show you the glories of Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified in weakness. So may God help us then to learn these lessons as we go through this book, to be a weak church, to be weak Christians who follow a Savior crucified in weakness. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you thankful for your grace where we know our own flesh and how we rebel against the truths of your word. How it is so easy for us to desire the ways of the world, the way of strength and self-dependence and pride. We pray that you would save us from it pray that you would put to death our flesh. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would conform us more and more into your image. We long to be like the Apostle Paul in knowing your great power. Knowing your power that is made perfect and has worked through our own weakness. So God, we pray that you would do it. As difficult as it is, even though it will require the death of our flesh. May you do this for us and in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.